morning is from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, and it can be found on page 962 in the Church Bibles. The heading on this reading is Robbing God. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. One of the uh, last things I did before leaving banking, in which I spent uh, 15 years, was negotiate a severance package for my team. Uh, The bank had been taken over by a large insurance company, and uh, investment banking in Latin America wasn't really one of their priorities. Um, So we had a notice period to work out, and we had to service the clients during that period. And as each day went on, my uh, negotiating position was obviously weakened, and uh, the team grew more and more restless. And in the middle of those negotiations, I realised that I was so focused on getting the best deal for myself and the rest of the team that I left God out of the equation. Of course, I had in my mind that once I'd um, got the deal, then I would, depending on the amount, give something to God. But what I had become blind to was the desire in me to make sure that I had enough before committing to give anything to God. And when God removed that blindness, I was able to promise him that I would give him 10% of whatever I managed to negotiate. And having made that promise, amazingly, the negotiations went uh, much easier, and suddenly uh, I managed to get an awful lot more than I had ever expected. Now, I share that with you, not because it's a lesson that if you give 10%, then you will get much, back, much more back, but because, as we shall see later, 10% is not really the issue. But I say it as a lesson to all of us that there's a danger that our love of money causes us to rob God without realising it. God says to the people of Malachi in this passage, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. And Israel replies, How do we rob you? How do we rob you? They are blind to the fact that looking after themselves first has meant that their giving has just become a token gesture, done out of duty rather than out of sense of joy. 
Well, for those visiting today or who are newcomers, we've come to the end of a sermon series in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the the Old Testament, written in the middle of the 5th century BC, 80 or so years after the people of Israel came out of exile in Babylon. One of the themes we've been looking at in this book is the covenant relationship between God and his people. The people have become disillusioned in their relationship with God. They haven't kept their side of the covenant. They've become shallow in their worship. They've become unfaithful in in their marriage. They've become unfaithful in their responsibilities to the poor and to the needy. And as we're going to look at this morning, they've become stingy in their giving. Now we'll come back on to some of the uh, the practical questions the the passage raises to do with um, how much we should give, how, how relevant is the tithe for us today, as well as looking at how we can avoid the temptation to rob God uh, either consciously or, or unconsciously. But I'd like to kick off by looking at the reason why the people of Israel were called to be generous and why we today should be generous in our giving to God. And in the process, hopefully how we can make giving a joy rather than a burden. And let me start by asking that question, do you enjoy giving? Do you enjoy giving? Answer that question honestly in your heart. Do you enjoy it? Or is it something you do because you feel you have to. Maybe like when somebody comes around trying to sell you raffle tickets for a good cause, you feel you ought to buy a few. Or do you even think about it? Maybe you've arranged a standing order and you feel, well, that's dealt with now. Actually, it's a bit like setting up your standing order for utility bills. Utility bills, it just takes care of itself. And the reason we pray during the service as we take up the offerings is because it's an important part of our worship. It's reminding ourselves of what God has given to us as we give something back to God. The joy of giving comes from wanting to please someone, whatever sort of giving it is, if you think about it. If that person has been incredibly generous to us, we want to to show how grateful we are. Even if we can never repay what they've given to us, we want to, to show some of our gratitude and we enjoy doing that. And so to encourage us in our giving to God, it may help us to start by just reflecting on his loving generosity towards us. What does the passage tell us about that? We're on page 962 of the uh, Church Bibles, if you'd like to turn to that, Matthew, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And here it says quite boldly, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Now, if any of us here were to say that, I guess we would be accused of Stubbornness, maybe arrogance, inflexibility, and many other things probably. Sometimes we need to change. The revolutions that have been going on in the the Middle East have shown us that um, people are angry about dictators who've been ruling their countries for many years and who are not prepared to change their authoritarian ways. But when God says, I do not change... It's in the context of a covenant that he has made with his people. Do you remember what the first words were that this uh, book started with? We turn back to chapter 1 of Malachi. First words there, Malachi 1-2, was, I have loved you. I have loved you. And the proof of that love, as we looked at, was that I chose you even though you didn't deserve it. I have loved you. And so to say now, I do not change, is to say, I still love you. I love you now just as much as I have always loved you. I've never wavered in my love for you. 
been reading a book recently called um, Crazy Love by um, uh, Hong Kong-born uh, American Francis Chan. Um, somebody who, in many ways, has a good reason to be angry at God. He um, lost his mother as she gave birth to him, uh, lost his stepmother at the age of nine, uh, lost his father at the age of 12. And yet he is somebody, as the subtitle of this book says, is overwhelmed by a relentless God. Somebody who's known the crazy love that God has for him and he himself is crazy in his desire to want to please God. When God says he does not change, it's because he's perfect, he's trustworthy. When he makes a promise, he will keep it. He's unable not to keep it. It is in his nature. And so when he says to Abraham, he will bless all nations of the world through him, that is a promise he will keep. When he says to David that out of his line would come the Messiah, the king who would reign forever, he will keep that promise. Now he knows that the people of Israel won't be obedient to their side of the covenant and he says in Psalm 89 if they violate my decrees the people of Israel and fail to keep my commands I will punish their sin but he also says but I will not take my love from him nor will I ever betray my faithfulness I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered God knew that they would be disobedient he knew they would fail to keep their, their covenant and he would punish them and he would withhold his blessing, but he would not stop loving them. And it's for this reason, if you look back, it's uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Having said, I, the Lord, do not change, he says, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. Return to me so that you won't lose out on the covenant blessings that I have for you. Which is the next thing this passage tells us about God's generosity. He promises to pour out blessing. Test me, he says in verse 10, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now I think there's two mistakes we can make when we read these these verses here. I think the first one is to preach what is called a, a prosperity gospel. It's quite common in parts of uh, Africa and South America where people are given to believe that the main escape that they need, the main freedom that Jesus brings, is an escape from the trap of poverty. And if they give more, give more than they're often physically able to give, then um, in some cases ending up in in debt, there will be an automatic financial reward for them. Now the way in which God showed his blessing in Old Testament times was often in the form of material blessing or prosperity. The promised land was a a physical place, overflowing with milk and honey, metaphorically speaking. But even then, the real need of the people was to know and experience God's love, to be made right with him. And the means by which that was achieved forever was by Jesus' death, which was prophesied, the death that achieved our salvation. And so the New Testament, when we turn to, let's just turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Here we read of the great spiritual blessings that God pours out on his people. Ephesians chapter 1, page 1173 of the Church Bibles. Let me just read these amazing verses um, from verse 3 onwards. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Tremendous verses that speak of the blessings that God has lavished on us that we've received because of his grace. But I think there's another mistake we can make in this passage also, not just to think in terms of um, prosperity gospel, but to say actually there's no link at all between our obedience to God and the blessings we may experience in this life now. God wants to bless us. He says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing. The thing is, when our hearts are so in tune with God, then what we experience as a blessing will be different from what it was when we weren't walking with God, when we were living without God, living our own lives, when we were living for just our selfish ways. The blessings that we want now, if we are believers here, if we are Christians, are blessings in ways that glorify God. For example, to, to pray for those dear to us to be saved and to see them come to Christ. What better blessing is there than that? Or to be restricted in the Lord's ministry, to be restricted in serving him, maybe because of poor health. And then to pray for, for healing and to be healed. Again, what greater blessing is there than that? To have a, a heartfelt concern for those in need and then to receive the financial means to be able to give to them and meet those needs. Again, what a great blessing is that. This guy, Francis Chan, who wrote this book, I listened to a talk by him recently, and he was describing how he felt a little bit disappointed that as a pastor, although that was his calling, um, he didn't feel able to give to people in need. He didn't really have the means to do that. And he describes how he was amazingly blessed when he wrote this book, and uh, it's actually sold over a million copies, um, he's made two million dollars and he was able to give all of that to people in need and he said, what a great blessing to be able to, to give what God has given me, to pour out blessings to others. A God is a great God of blessing. But let's turn to some practical questions that this passage raises as well about, um, first of all, how much should we give? Because verse 9 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And you may ask, what exactly is a tithe? Well, basically, it's a tenth. The uh, people of Israel were called to dedicate a tenth of all they earned, whether it was um, from their crops or, or their livestock, um, their fruit. Uh, it wasn't a limit. They were invited also to make free will offerings. Um, they were called to write off their debts to, to, to other people every seven years. Um, and as it says in Deuteronomy, it says... Give generously to the poor man among you. Do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There's a little chart here come up on the screen about the things that uh, those givings uh, were, were put towards. One of those was supporting the Levites, the, the priests who had no land themselves to, to receive um, crops or, or things to support themselves from. Um, part of it was the celebrations and worship. 
to looking after orphans and widows. Um, and in some ways, that's no different from our Christian giving today. It's, it's used to pay church workers. It's used for church activities. Um, it's used for helping the needy. And I guess the main difference is that uh, from the situation for the people of Israel is that we're encouraged to bring the good news to all nations of the world. And obviously that involves a need to give. But what does the New Testament also tell us about how much should we give? The tithe is mentioned in the New Testament, but it's actually mentioned in the context of Jesus pronouncing a series of woes on the Pharisees. Um, This is what it says in Luke 11. Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, These were the Jewish leaders of the time because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. What he's getting at here is that more important than the actual giving is your attitude to giving. Your giving is meant to be a part of your love for God. And so there's no point in giving if you're not showing love and justice, he's saying to these Pharisees. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're given principles such as the willingness to give. In 2 Corinthians 9, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's where we started off, wasn't it? Do you enjoy giving? Because God takes great delight when we enjoy giving to him. Secondly, a freedom in giving, a freedom to give more. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul, talking about the Macedonian churches, he says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And when you read this, you should see that it's not so much a question of how much should I give, it's actually how much can I give? Maybe what can I do without in order to be able to give more? Often Christians will be keen to point out that the tithe is no longer applicable today in order to justify giving less, but in actual fact it should be a reason to give more. You know, after all, how much more do we know than the people of Israel then about God's generosity? We've seen the price that was paid on the cross. God's love for us. And so we shouldn't need to make excuses to God about our giving. And yet we do, don't we? And why is that? How can we avoid being tempted to rob God? People of Israel are told in Malachi that they are robbing God. They weren't bringing in the whole tithe. They were keeping some back for themselves. Just as they weren't bringing their best animals for sacrifice, they were keeping them for themselves. And so the first way in which we can avoid being tempted to rob God is being aware of the seductiveness of money. 1 Timothy 6, it says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I'd say money is probably the biggest obstacle to the growth of the gospel in this country. 
It's probably the biggest obstacle to Christians growing in their faith. Now, there may be some here this morning who literally can't give any more. And if that's you, I don't want you to feel guilty in any way about what you give. But I guess for most of us, we are seduced by money. And often without realising it. As uh, Tim Keller points out in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, which I can recommend to you, um, money can serve different idols within us. Um, and they're deeper idols. It may just be the idol simply of uh, materialism or finding satisfaction and enjoyment in, in things. Um, for others, it may be the idol of approval and appreciation, the respect in our society for having wealth. Maybe the idol of power and influence that uh, the money brings. For others, it may be the idol of financial security which may actually mean having quite a thrifty lifestyle because you, you're worried about the future. You don't want to spend. And it's still being seduced by money. And so if that's you, for example, don't um, criticise the person who you think is spending too much because you yourself may have a different idol that you are worshipping. But whatever it is, the thing about the love of money is that we're normally blind to it. As Tim Keller says in that book, he says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost, he says. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul and people around me. By the way, can I say, if there is an area of sin you are struggling with, whether it's money or anything else, do feel free to come and talk to Jeff and myself about it. You know, don't feel you have to struggle on your own with sin we, are, we can avoid being tempted to rob God by being aware of the seductiveness of money but secondly by trusting in God's provision because the greatest gift of God towards us is his grace it's by his grace that we have been saved we're told that in Ephesians it's not from ourselves we're told it's the gift of God to us the story of Ezekiel in the Bible, which um, Keller looks at in, in his book, is an example of how the, God, the grace of God can break the seductiveness of money. Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, look, sort out your money problems, and then I'll come and pay you a visit and see what we can do. That would have been salvation by works. Now, he went to see him, and in the process of visiting him, he opened his eyes to the fact that money was his God. He showed him what he really needed. As a result, when Jesus left Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus said, look, I'm going to give 50% of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody, um, I'm going to repay them four times that amount. Now, it's easy to read that, isn't it, and think, um, oh, 50%, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Did you really need to give so much away? Or, or four times? Uh, did you really need to repay so much? That's precisely the point of that story that Jesus told. He was saying, it wasn't actually a story, it's a real thing that happened in Jesus' life. And he was saying, I'm no longer dependent on money. Zacchaeus is saying, I can do without it, thanks to the grace of God. Money is now no longer my servant, it is no longer my master, it is my servant. What does it take to release us from the grip of money? The answer is to trust in God's provision. 1 Timothy 6 says this, it says <clears throat> command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant 
nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And that often means trusting in God when it's even harder. Chan talks in his book about a friend who'd been faithfully giving 20% of his income to God, and suddenly his income dropped dramatic, dramatically. Now, he could have simply lowered his giving to 10%, um, but actually he decided to increase it, increase it to 30%. And it wasn't long before God blessed that faith and gave him more than he needed. We can avoid being tempted to rob God by trusting in his provision. And finally, we can avoid being tempted to rob God by reminding ourselves that all we have is God's anyway. 1 Chronicles 29 says, But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. The Bible story tells us that man was created by God. It tells us that we were put in charge of the world to enjoy it, to rule over it, but ultimately it still belongs to God. We are stewards of what is God's. And at the end of the day, you can choose to give and take away, so let's not fool ourselves that what we have comes from our own efforts, that it will always be with us. And let's say with Job, in whatever our circumstances, blessed be the name of the Lord. I just want to finish with a story about um, the uh, 18th century preacher John Wesley, down to the Methodist Church, somebody who practised what he preached when it came to to living frugally, uh, even though that uh, his uh, royalties made him one of England's richest people. But he believed in earning all you can, saving all you can, and giving away all you can. And instead of letting his expenses rise with his income like we, we tend to, he, he kept his expenses to the £28 he spent in 1731. Don't ask me what that equates to today. Um, but what, that was when he first began to follow biblical principles of stewardship. And in 1744, Wesley wrote this, he wrote, When I die... If I leave behind me ten pounds, mankind can bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. In 1791, when he died, the only money they found were a few coins left in his pockets and chest of drawers.